Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning. This is Annie and Kim here. Yes, Kim. good morning, everyone. And yeah. good morning, Annie. Yes, good morning. And it's raining and it's cold. I've just been in Sydney where it was not. It was not raining and cold. As soon as I got off the plane in uh, Melbourne, it was raining. Unbelievable. Welcome home. Welcome home. That's right. That's what I reckon too. And today's program, we've got lots of things to talk about. I've brought back a Sydney story. And so before we rabbit on and tell you what we're going to have in the rest of the program, we're going to go straight over to Sydney to find out about the battle of the uh, Sydney College of the Arts. And you'll notice that there's a hint of what happened at the VCA and Melbourne University. On the line, we've got Thomas McLaughlin, who's the legal representative at the uh, Sydney University Student Union. Uh, G'day. And for your listeners, uh, uh, I'm uh, Anne's brother. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Bit Uh, of nepotism. uh, So obviously when she was visiting in Sydney, we were talking about things that are going on here. And um, so I'm the principal solicitor at SRC Legal Service at the um, Students' Representative Council at the University of Sydney, where where um, uh, where the union for the students. That's right. And in the studio, we've got Kim as well as myself, Tom. Okay. All right. Um, lovely to meet you over the airwaves. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the issue with the uh, Sydney College of Arts, based at the Roselle campus in um, lovely Callan Park, um, next to the Bay, what's known as the Bay Precinct, um, is that there's 650 students there. It's a 19th century sandstone heritage building. It's a bit like the equivalent of um, the famous uh, sandstone quadrangle um, on the Camperdown or so-called main campus of the university. So whenever your listeners or uh, Melbourne audience have been... uh, um, uh, seen stories about Sydney University, they'll have seen, probably seen a picture of that sandstone quadrangle. Well, there's um, another sandstone um, iconic heritage site um, which is in the universe, Sydney University um, uh, portfolio and that's at, um, at the College of Art <clears throat> in Roselle. So what's been going and, on down at that uh, college? Because, uh, yeah. yeah. The... the um, the university has been investigating how it can um, it can wind down and close that college, and it's something of a uh, a mystery uh, and uh, a sensational scandal here in Sydney how 
um, a university would be closing down a world-leading art, art school um, uh, and uh, why on earth they would want to do it. Um, in 2008, if anyone goes to Wikipedia, they'll see that um, the college, the university sought to expand the college um, from 700 to 6,000 students. Unfortunately, they put with that a very large uh, developer proposal um, and um, the uh, Callan Park um, public space is, is not just for the art school, it's for the whole of um, the enjoyment of, of the suburbs around, the residential suburbs around there, the, um, uh, of the inner west, and uh, the state government said that, that was, an, that was uh, overdoing it. Um, so, so what you're saying yeah. is that it's a bit like uh, uh, we'll d- uh, they publicise it as being a positive and for everybody, but in actual fact, da- the big developers are siphoning off public land. Yeah, well, the university is a developer. They they build um, they build things. Um, they've got a six hundred million dollar um, expansion program um, uh, up till twenty twenty. They've got a seventy million dollar. Um, new administration block for the the senior managers um, um, said to be due by um, for roll out by February two thousand and seventeen. While in parallel, they have announced that they want to close um, the Sydney College of Art. Um, and um, there's been a big argument here in Sydney, and apparently, it's quite quite an echo of what happened with the VCA in Melbourne. Because um, first, the university said, oh, we we want to go into partnership with the University of New South Wales. Um, Reading into the detail, they actually just wanted to divest it. They just wanted to shift all the students over to another another art school because there's three art schools here in Sydney and they do somewhat different things. Um, At the the students that are my clients, 138 of them, they have they enrolled so they could be at that Roselle campus that they could use the the, the um, do arts practice uh, that was studio based and workshop based. So it's a learning method, or um, you know, to use the jargon, a pedagogy um, that involves hands on. It's very practical. So there's um, stu- studios like um, jewelry and object um, uh, painting, uh, ceramic and glass kilns. Um, the largest etching press in the Southern Hemisphere, etc. I mean, many, many labs for uh, print and studio-based. Um, uh, and this is incredibly important to people who are in this field, right? So obviously yeah. the people who are uh, moving the uh, pea and shells around don't care about this sort of level of uh, well, art expertise. Well, I mean, a former acting dean, Marilyn Fairskye, has gone on record saying Sydney University, sadly, isn't a friend of the arts. Um, um, Some elite philanthropists here in Sydney have said it looks like they may need to start moving their money out of iconic projects like the the Art Gallery of New South Wales and start putting it back into the art schools because the art schools are in such trouble. There's been a fair bit of coverage about another art school, the National National Art School, um, which is uh, has an excellence in in the, the painting area, and um, uh, the College of Art at Roselle, which is in the university, has an excellence in this studio-based practice. So um, my role as, as a solicitor is to protect those students' consumer rights. Um, 
and it's not that well known, but uh, students in the tertiary education sector, they are protected by the Australian consumer law. Um, just as if, just as you're protected if you go to a shop and you don't get what you're promised, um, it's the same with buying services. If if, if you um, sign up for or pay for services that you that you don't get, um, I mean, there's a good echo um, or parallel with the vocational education um, sector at the moment with a lot of scandals with dodgy colleges um, not delivering what they promise. Now, Sydney University is a, a is a highly respected and acclaimed institution, and, and they're very jealous of protecting their reputation and and complying with the law. But I think they have um, drifted into error um, with the um, the SCA, as we call it, um, SCA at Roselle, um, uh, because uh, the students aren't are, are going to have all of those studio workshop um, offerings taken off them. Um, and the university has been quite... Uh, initially, they were quite brazen in saying um, they would just um, transfer them to a different university. They reversed that on the 28th of um, July, um, which uh, seems to me a, an admission that they um, had got it wrong. Then they issued a, a, a draft, what's called a draft change plan, on the 9th of August, saying, well, we, we're not going to close it immediately, but we'll do it slowly over the next couple of years. And um, that contradicts um, the the uh, promise of degrees at Roselle. Um, yeah, death by a thousand cuts, you mean? Yeah, and it puts them in breach of the consumer law. So um, just at the end of this week, um, we uh, gave a copy of, uh, of the legal claim uh, to the the chief lawyer at the university. They have a, a, a legal office there with a good 10 or 20 lawyers. Um, and uh, the value of each claim is just under 30000 we think, um, either to perform the contract or to um, pay um, refund of tuition fees and other consequential loss. And when you multiply that out, that's um, for our 138 students, that's about $4.1 million in legal exposure through the, um, uh, the Civil and Administrative Tribunal. Um, we call it NCAT, I think, down in Victoria. They call it VCAT. VCAT. <laughs> yeah. And um, um, if all, you know, if some of those um, cases go forward and are successful, I could well anticipate a momentum towards uh, uh, up to the full 650 students um, following suit, each with their $30,000 claim, which comes out to a, um, a pretty serious uh, a figure of $19.5 million legal exposure. Well, let's hope that that is the case, because that's all they seem to care about is the money. I was quite yeah. interested in the fact that from the outside, it seems quite incredulous that they would try to sabotage this institution of theirs, which is so really prestigious and is actually a place of learning but I think it follows this pattern in universities where increasingly they want each department and particularly humanities and arts to make money for itself they don't want to actually have to fund humanities or arts they want it to pay for itself like engineering does through the patterns that it gets through research um, yeah. at the university do you think this is partly what's behind this move um it, it, there definitely is a very limited and narrow um, economic model being um, 
rammed through the university. Um, they have a, a space charge um, internal accounting device, which they know it's known as UEM or Universal Economic uh, Management Charge. Um, so with the SCA, it looks from the figures we've seen from from the SCA, it looks like they've got a, a 4.3 million dollar surplus on a on um, uh, 11.2 million um, uh, budget, and uh, the university wants to rip nine million dollars out of that on a space charge. And the the financing's all a bit murky, and so that's why we're calling for um, the New South Wales Parliament. Um, public accounts committee to get involved and and look over the university, which is a creature of um, New South state legislation, um, because uh, when when the independent SCA art school was uh, handed over to the university um, back in the mid 90s, the state government said, "Well, you know, we really want you to do this." Um, and just to um, make it uh, financially viable for you, we're going to gift you a, um, a significant uh, building in the CBD so that you can um, take that, a, that as, a, as a land subsidy. Now, that land subsidy was the old school building, uh, sorry, old law school building, um, and they sold that in 2015 for $45 million. Now, um, we, we hear from the number three at the university, the 35 million of that, of that was then diverted off to a medical institute at the Royal North Shore Hospital. Um, so will they uh, make that space charge you're talking about? I think I've heard about this in universities before, that they actually make the faculty, even though it's part of the university, rent space from them as a way of kind of pushing yeah. them to um, tighten their own budgets? Yeah, it's, it's, it's said... Um, I mean, the it's reason outrageous. The, well, I mean, the number three, Professor Garten, he, they call him, he has this title of provost, which I, I guess is some sort of old Oxbridge reference, but he's number three senior manager. He, he says the college has been running at a deficit, um, but the deficit is based on an internal accounting device, um, which is a, a levy. I mean, um, I don't want to get, I mean... I no, it's sophistry, it, basically. And we... We, we don't want. I don't want to be too um, sort of sensationalist, but I am reminded of the Boston Tea Party and taxation without representation. The the, the art school is paying this whopping levy for land that was donated, which, which the government um, at the time arranged a financial subsidy for. And just just on one one general point, there is that. The art school clearly has a demonstrated capacity for fundraising. If the state government um, 20 years ago said, well, we're willing to kick in $45 million in, in value to keep this uh, going, um, uh, it looks very much to me like the art school could um, raise that kind of funding again. Um, but the university has set its um, mind against um, maintaining and um, building building the capacity of the art school. We've got lots of um, uh, choice evidence about the university doing quite scurrilous things to sabotage the increase in enrolments. They had a, they had a record first, first preference um, uh, uh, cohort in November 2015 and the university sabotaged it by, by announcing the, the school would, would be winding down and 
naturally enough, a lot of those first year students decide, oh, well, we'll go off to the, the, the other university art school. Um, and uh, the, the staff there at the college had built, uh, worked up a um, Bachelor of Visual Communication degree, which is incredibly appealing um, in today's arts industry. It, it, it feeds into the digital, uh, the virtual digital reality sector of the gaming industry. And for those who aren't that involved in gaming, because I'm not a gamer myself, but it's bigger than the Hollywood film industry. That's exactly um, right. Yeah, no one, uh, because of that bloody Pokemon thing, no one will stop talking about (laughs) VR. (laughs) It turns out out that they have 30 or 40 billion dollar releases um, in that industry, um, which is more successful than Hollywood, um, the Hollywood film industry that we, you know, that's become conventional or traditional. And um, uh, for someone to be an expert in um, virtual reality art, Artist, artistry, um, it, it makes a lot of sense for them to have the skills in three-dimensional space that, that comes from ceramic and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the art, artisan skills of jewellery and object and, and the, the, the whole six uh, workshop streams. So what you're really saying is that uh, this attack on the uh, Sydney College of the Arts it defies logic, and so that's yeah, that it says doesn't something. Seem to have a financial um, basis, really a financial logic to it. But there does seem, from a from an outsider's perspective, it does seem to have a a degree of vanity um, in the policy making. They didn't get what they wanted in two thousand and. Are you there? Well, you seem to have disappeared. I can't hear you anymore. Uh, anyway. We might be able to uh, pick Tom up again, but uh, otherwise, let's hear from uh, Carol Carpenty. One ad. Well, that was thoroughly interesting. I yes. think they've gone off on baby duty, so never mind. But that was a thoroughly interesting uh, look at uh, the uh, undermining, basically, of uh, the uh, using excellence univers- in the, excellence, the arts, yeah. really. Yeah, it, it, it's a um, the battle for uh, the Sydney uh, Arts College, College of Arts, is is actually, as Thomas said, very close to the undermining of the VCA, which at the time was just incredible. Uh, that that battle hasn't actually finished at the VCA. Uh, it's this is an ongoing. Uh, rearranging of uh, public assets to the benefit of uh, a managerial focus on universities, which undermines the actual brains trust of a whole country. 
Yes, and I think it's a snapshot of neoliberalism in universities and how it plays out and how it seems really counterintuitive to excellence and learning, because it is. Yeah, which it is. So you have to ask yourself, what's actually going on? And that's a watching brief, because as Thomas said, they're in the process of uh, taking the uh, university to court over this issue because it's not a small issue. This is uh, the uh, there. It's another line in the sand uh, issue that that in a sense is quite similar to the line in the sand issues that are going on in say CUB, or uh, where um, fifty five uh, maintenance workers are told you know you can have your job back if you take a cut of sixty five percent. They're rearranging the entire landscape of uh, life as we know it in Australia to benefit a uh, quite small uh, group of people. Hey, hey, talking about that, this uh, big um, carry-on that's been going on with uh, 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 funding, political funding, mm. you've been following this story. You, yes. And, of course, it's, uh, adds, it um, follows through that, uh, you know, uh, Sam... Dastiari and uh, him uh, and his uh, foolish behaviour with uh, Chinese uh, Chinese uh, investors, basically. Um, this diverts people's attention from the enormous scandal that should have brewed over Bishop and uh, the Western Australian Lib- branch of the Liberal Party, who had uh, huge amounts of finance coming out of Chinese investors without any uh, connection to any, not even a connection to any projects that were apparently uh, being expected uh, as a p- potential. Uh, so it was a general uh, amount of millions of dollars to support the Liberal Party in Western Australia coming through Bishop. Now, that's gone from the pages of the newspapers and uh, they've now, uh, you know, taken Sam's head on the pike. Uh, but uh, then the thing that was interesting to me was that it then went on to the news headline of, uh, and this is coming out of the ABC, where they're talking about how the two polit- major political parties and what they think about uh, uh, how they should change, you know, what's their thinking on how uh, changes could be made regarding uh, foreign uh, support of political parties in Australia. Now, I don't know about you, but where's the question of how does that suit us, the public, having outsiders deciding that they're going to finance political parties here? Well, I guess the, my problem with the Sam Dastiari thing is not so much that I have any yeah. love for this man in particular, but that it's small beer. It was like $1,600 that I think the amount that they're... His travel costs and food. And you look at people like Turnbull who are millionaires and apparently no one has a problem with this or a problem with millionaires and billionaires donating to the Liberal Party. They're the party of big business and them trying to, they're going on about donations that unions give to the Labor Party. Well, actually, all of this is completely corrupt, except the donations that unions give really to the Liberal, to the um, Labor Party, because that's actually a group exercising their political view, but it's okay for like individual billionaires to give money to the Liberals. Like it's a completely skewed view of actually, I suppose, politics and what real corruption is, because that's not even called corruption. I think they've got to a stage where they actually don't know what corruption is. I mean, I I, I find it bizarre that the way 
the Turnbull government has quite literally believes that it's running a corporation as opposed to a government. And I think that came blindingly obvious when they had the, the, uh, uh, the census um, malfunction, or whatever you call it. I mean, is, is uh, uh, the uh, breast uh, the covering of an uh, entertainer was called a malfunction, you know, when it slipped? Oh, yes, uh, yeah. the wardrobe malfunction. Yeah, well, the wardrobe malfunction, but uh, a whole census uh, um, thing falling down. Uh, well, whatever, whatever the word Hashtag would be. census fail. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, but when uh, Turnbull came out and stood there on the podium saying heads will roll, it seemed to me quite a bizarre uh, way of dealing with what was a government uh, um, mechanism. Because in actual fact, you'd have to say, you normally you would say, oh, goodness, things have gone awry. We need to investigate what's happened which is what a government would do as opposed to a corporation where they stand there and say, oh, you know, some some underling is going to take the rap. <laughs> you know what I mean? It reminds me actually of what Naomi Klein wrote about that when they talk about corruption um, in, I suppose, uh, less developed countries. They're often countries where that have been actually neoliberal experiments, so places like Egypt and actually corruption is linked to neoliberalism because the idea of a self-regulating market actually allows all the space for corruption, legal and illegal. And why that reminds me of the whole census debacle is because partly they, I think they outsourced it to a private company, which is increasingly what they do with different aspects of Government. welfare state, you know, whether it's job seekers, and we all know about the rorts in those jobs, private job seekers. Actually, this creates the space for this corruption. And that's actually, I think, personally, a deliberate policy of governments to encourage this sort of thing so they can, you know, wipe their hands and... Well, that's the thing clean. about uh, public service is that they have inbuilt uh, accountability functions, whatever people think, because they're supposed to be uh, for the public uh, benefit they also need to fess up if there's a problem. While when you take things into the private business world, everything's in commercial incompetence. You know, yeah, no, you know, no, freedom of information but, requests there. No, I mean, people should be very scared, very scared, and be careful what they ask for. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, we might uh, go and uh, give you a chance to think about other things other than... Uh, our rant. Our rant. Which base provides key information for every US drone strike, played a crucial role in Iraq and Afghanistan wars, as well as providing targeting and surveillance information for the Israeli Defence Force? Star Wars. The Empire Strikes Back. War. Is terrorism. It's the Pine Gap Joint Defence Facility, located just 20 kilometres from Alice Springs on Aranda Country, and this year marks 50 years of its inglorious existence. Come and join the closed Pine Gap protest near the gates of the base from September 26 to 30th. For all the details, head to closepinegap.org. Getting quick to book your early bird bus ticket from Melbourne for just $200 return. That's closepinegap.org. See that. Close Pine Gap is a 3CR supporter. Is terrorism. Star Wars. 
As well, if you'd like to find out more about that, there is a public forum and it's called Pine Gap Serving US Militarism for 50 Years Time for Independence. And that is on Wednesday the 14th of September, so next week at 7pm. The New Council Chambers, Victorian Trades Hall. Um, if you don't know the address, Google it. <laughs> it's on the corner of uh, Victoria Street and uh, You should Lyman know where Street. it is. <laughs> you should know where it is. Yeah. Well, well um, I went to something there that was uh, really interesting. It was a talk, there were talks, it was uh, a breakfast talk series that, uh, um, I can't remember the, the uh, search. Um, you know, when the Communist Party uh, uh, closed, it um, then uh, put the funds that it had left over to uh, uh, an organisation that uh, prom promotes educational forums and uh, speaking and stuff like that. I'm sorry, I, sh I should know, and someone might ring up and tell me so I can tell everybody else. You can join this organisation. And one of the things they do is organise breakfasts where you can go and hear really interesting speakers. And it gave me the opportunity to actually uh, record... Uh, uh, the next person that we're going to listen to t this morning, Tiernan uh, Brady. Now, Tiernan Brady was the uh, political director of the Irish Mar Marriage Equality Group. And so what he did was give us a talk about what they did and how they influenced people uh, into the ultimate yes vote. He now is the... Um, he, d he did such a great job that he was invited to become the executive director of Australians for Equality. And uh, he said something very interesting, which isn't part of this, uh, but he said that he uh, they're not actually in favour of a plebiscite because they one it, it, it's one of those things that um, uh, well you can hear from his talk why he's, why he says that because he doesn't see that this should be a confrontation a societal confrontation because it's about people who are your you know, it could be you, it could be your brother, it could be your sister. It, it It's about not excluding people from their rightful place in society. And uh, to make that into a battleground, he he concludes, is probably anti-productive because uh, after the battle, it will still remain that these people and everybody, you know, if it was you or, or your relatives or just people you know, they it remains. They require their rights. I think it's, if you think about it in terms of if everyone wasn't for, you know, for instance, women or for uh, black people having the right to marry, like interracial marriage, would you then change the law to make to eliminate their civil rights? Well, that sounds absolutely heinous in hindsight. So you don't you have to really think about the nature of democracy. It's not democracy if you know fifty one percent of the population That's decide right. that you know the fate of someone else. Yeah, I know. Anyway, he he uh, he's he's a very interesting character. So um, here, this is what he had to say. This Tim and Brady. I've been I've been here for a few months now. We're working with an awful lot of organisations and engaging, and, and of course, there's a lot of interest. I found that there's a lot of interest about the Irish experience and how did how did Ireland manage to pass this by a public vote? It's the only country in the world that has ever managed to do it. Um, and I think a lot of it comes from the genuine surprise about Ireland, because most people, you know, kind of go, oh, even Ireland did this, which, which, which I noticed a lot when I got here first. And, you know, I always like to think, you know, in Ireland, we do think of ourselves as the home of Microsoft and LinkedIn and Facebook, which we are. 
but the rest of the world sees us very much as the land of countryside sheep and priests. Uh, Father Ted, more than you know, Bill Gates. And that's true, actually, because there's a little bit of truth always in both generalizations about a about country. Um, we are a religious country, a country of very deep faith, a very small sea conservative country in that you know, we think hard about social change and we certainly think hard about changing our constitution. So persuading people was very much, it's always very much an uphill battle as you try to get people to see that it, this will be okay on the other side of the decision. Whereas always the no side of an easier argument because they just say don't believe in change, don't bother doing it. Uh, if you're not sure about no, which is, I mean, it's a bogus line, but it's such a great line because it, it's the one that allows people to go, I'm, I'm just not there yet. The interesting thing always, though, is that Ireland, just as it was a religious and country of great faith before the vote, is still a religious country of great faith the day after the vote. And they voted not in contradiction to their values. They voted because of their values. Because we created a national conversation that allowed people to see this through their values. Values which, as social justice Catholics, they've shared a lot with trade unions and progressives. The idea of social justice, the idea of human dignity, the idea that a life half lived is a shame on all of us. And those principles were the ones that we tried to push all the time to get people to see these things through the values that they already hold dear. I think sometimes Sometimes we scare people as we talk about change because we can sound like we're trying to tell them everything they've known before is bad. Everything they believe in is wrong uh, and that it's time they changed. And it's never been an effective line. It turns out that calling, you know, shouting at someone or saying you're a terrible bigot doesn't persuade anybody. You know, there really genuinely is no one who, you know, clutches their pearls and goes, oh, well, now that you've called me a homophobe, let me get to the polling station to vote for and yet within the simplicity of that thought lies so much of what we have to do to win. The idea of going, actually, we want you to make this journey with us. We don't want to beat you. We want to persuade you. We want you to talk with us. We want you to engage. Because we should have confidence that our, the progressive value of marriage equality is a good one. And it's one that stands up to scrutiny. It's one that's about fairness and equality one that's about making sure every single member of your family has the same aspirations as everyone else in your family. And that should be a reassuring message, not a challenging one. And when it's put like that, you start to get to that point where people feel comfortable. I always thought of the polls in Ireland, and I think the polls here are very similar. You know, there's a clear majority in favour of marriage equality. Um, and our job as a campaign is to reassure them on that last step as they take the last step of a journey they're already in favor of, that they do believe that this is a good idea. And others will try and misdirect them, and others will try and make them think it's about something else. Uh, there'll be red herrings galore the whole way through a campaign, whether it's for legislation or whether it's in a plebiscite. Um, we'll hear loads of those. But that's because I think even those who vehemently oppose this already know they can't win the argument. They've given up. Marriage equality is something that they know Australians believe in and support. So the journey for them is how do you make people feel worried about change and at the same time make them think it's about something else that they could be genuinely worried about as well. And part of the challenge for all of us, I think, is how do you create a space where people can make that journey? 
and for the Irish campaign it was all about how do you allow people to have the conversation and I know Sally has heard me say at least one of these before you know, people are scared to talk to LGBT people about marriage equality they're scared to talk to LGBT people about LGBT issues full stop even the word LGBT, LGBTI, LGBTQI they find intimidating because they don't want to get it wrong they don't want to look disrespectful. And I'm not even talking about on Q&A. We're talking about in, in homes and families where nieces you know, won't talk to their aunts about what it's like to be a lesbian or what, the, you know, what, what are the issues that face you. Because you don't want to be judged. You don't want people thinking in some way you're you know, disrespectful to them, that you don't see their life. So people don't ask the questions. And because people don't ask the questions, what should be very easily addressed doubts become no voters because we haven't made the space for the journey. Even when we think of some of the language that we use ourselves, which is so important for us internally as, you know, as a group of people, like LGBTIQ, you know, that's a real barrier for people. You know, we sound more like a union sometimes, or a pension company. You know? <laughs> what are you today? I mean, what are you Q, are you L, are you B? And that's not to discount the importance of those to us, but it is to recognize that they are barriers to people engaging with us. And that our job isn't just to recognize the barrier, but that if we want to take down the social barriers, we have to take down the barriers that are preventing people engaging with us when we know we have the best answers. We had a minister in the government at home and he continuously told me how much he supported BLT, equality. And he spent about six months campaigning for equality for sandwiches. <laughs> all the way through the country. And that was okay, because that was his language, was his understanding of it. You know, a 70-year-old woman who stands in a doorway when she's being canvassed, these are all true. And said, of course I'm voting for you. Sure, it's not your fault you the way you are. And <laughs> of course it's politically incorrect. But that's the generation that grew up thinking that. And, and that woman has made a remarkable journey for someone who has lived for 75 years growing up in a society that has indoctrinated her in the language of marginalizing le lesbian and gay people. And yet she has made that journey. So rather than us being the barrier going, oh, you can't really say that, her job was to be welcoming and go, isn't that fabulous? A, a middle-aged woman answered a door in a place called Tullamore, which I discovered was a place called Tullamore here as well. Uh, Tullamore, and she said, oh, I'm so glad you're here to one of the canvas teams, and says, oh yeah, I'm voting yes, I'm voting yes. I'm not sure about himself indoors. And of course, himself indoors pipes up, who's at the door? And she roars back, it's the queers. <laughs> They're here looking to get married. And he pauses for about, I'd say probably about 10 seconds, but as the story was recanted to me, it was about had like 10 minutes. But he says, my dog, tell them that's fine, I, I, I'm voting yes. But tell them I'm taken. And so, how, how do you allow this to be as joyful as the value it is? How do you allow the conversations not to be angry, but to be the truth of it, which is respect and love and happiness? You know, we're selling one of the most wonderful values in the world. A value that every single person, no matter where they are on the spectrum, sees as a good idea for society that lifelong loving committed relationships are good for the couple, good for their families, good for communities, good for our country. And sometimes we just don't look as happy and respectful as what we're selling. And we have to understand that that is a barrier for us in Ireland. And we took it down. 
and you managed to build a campaign that brought people together and realized that this was about someone in their space, a member of their family. Because ultimately the real journey we had to do in Ireland, and I think we are doing here and will continue to do here, is how do we allow everyone to make the journey from what am I voting for to who am I voting for? To move away from this idea of culture values and culture war and angry debates in ABC. You know, Q&A will do us no favours, even if they're in favour of us, for all I know, but they won't because, you know, all too often angry television debates produce lots of sound and very little light. And there's a person at home in Toowoomba or Ballarat watching that going, but I had a question and it really didn't get answered in that shouting match. So instead of concentrating at that level, how are we in Ireland and here to move that conversation to dinner tables, where it really needs to happen, to supermarkets, to streets, to standing on the corner of the football pitch. We vote about people in these communities, and this is where the conversations have to happen. If we're to allow people in those communities to be able to see the truth of that, that it's about someone standing beside them. And I know that we have a little bit of a journey to go here about what way we have to do this. And I suppose our great challenge is we have to play the cards we're going to get dealt. Obviously we like to try, try our best to influence what cards we get, but when the cards are dealt to us, we either have to choose to play them or walk away from the table. And opportunities sometimes come and never come back. Um, and it may not always be the game we want to play, as is so often the case in social progress, that you have to fight it on a pitch that you wouldn't like to fight it on. Uh, but we have to play it. Uh, somewhere inside, so much of the comment that we had in Ireland, and so much of the comment here that I've heard is, I am sure they'll come anyway. You know, and for a breakfast meeting for a progressive group, the one thing that everybody in this room knows is there's nothing as uninevitable as progress. Progress doesn't come by itself. Progress has to be fought for with every fibre of your being. And once won, it has to be bedded down and secured, and then guarded forever. Progress is not something that you just go, it will happen and it will all be okay and then it will be there forever. History teaches us the exact opposite lesson and this will be the exact same here. We have a chance, no matter what happens, whether it's legislation or whether it's a plebiscite, to build a national conversation that brings people together, that does something joyful for a country. Because ultimately, whatever way we change the law, what has to happen afterwards is how we change the culture. And we have to do that as we change the law. Because it's all right changing a piece of legislation. It's only when families and communities and villages change that we really change people's lives and how they get on, how they experience being a lesbian and gay person in a progressive, tolerant, not just tolerant, tolerant is such a terrible word, accepting, accepting society. And it should be joyful, it should be fun, it should be energizing. It should be the chance of a generation to do something that if it does happen to be a plebiscite, if it does happen to be a plebiscite, we'll have to play a game that none of us want to do. We don't want it to be a plebiscite. No one asked for it to be a plebiscite that's LGBT. Uh, but if it does happen, we have to take it up as the challenge of a generation. The idea that we will get this once in a lifetime moment that most generations don't get a chance at ever having of not just saying marriage equality is a good thing, but this is Australia, these are our values. 
these are who we are and this is what we think is important, the most important thing to say about us as a people right now at this moment. And that should be energizing, it should be joyful for people who are engaged in progressive politics. It just should be something that we spend the rest of our lives thinking about and smiling about every single morning. That we change people's lives forever. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it would be nice to have a win like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I found it very interesting, his uh, capacity to... Uh, uh, it's quite a sophisticated argument that he's putting forward. He's quite right. I mean, you know, lambasting somebody. You've, you're incredibly angry about something. You're, you're prepared to... You will lambast people. You know, you can spit the dummy. You've had enough. I'm, I'm sick and tired of having to uh, explain to people why... Uh, you know, you could say uh, why this is uh, painful and dreadful to that uh, a group of people in our society are, are treated with such disrespect. But uh, he's right. Uh, if you can broaden the argument so that uh, it uh, there's shared values, you're probably more likely to get a result. Well, I think that actually in Australia the argument was one quite a few years ago and it was won by people actually marching on the streets. So in 2004 when the ban came in, it was only like 38% of people who supported same-sex marriage. And after the equal love demonstrations and the rallies on the street, I guess you would call that in some ways, some people probably would call that aggressive, but that is what changed people's minds. We're seeing people stand up and fight back for themselves and for other people. And we've already actually won the argument. We just actually, and actually we already have a majority of parliamentarians who support it. We just need them to actually do what they're elected to do. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it was quite interesting to see research. Uh, someone was talking about uh, the issue of abortion in America, for example. Now, there's been uh, the Pew, uh, the research organisation Pew, has put out some very interesting uh, statistics about this, that they'll find that, and this makes sense, that you'll have the... Uh, the people who are dead set against and those who are dead set for, they, they will form 20% uh, uh, on either side or thereabouts. Okay, There will be this uh, set of a group of people who are quite clear about what they believe to be so. And so when you're trying to change, uh, cause a social change, you're not actually talking to those people because they're already, generally speaking, quite clear about their stance. It's all the people in between that are in the position to alter their view on something. And so, of course, when you're trying to... Ch I mean, I do know I've met people who have had, uh, uh, you know, uh, cataclysmic changes of view, like the, the, there's some things have... Uh, presented themselves in such a way that their entire sense of self have crumbled. And, of course, people have mental breakdowns when that happens. And that's all those things that uh, they have in their mind that give them structure. And, you know, that can be uh, beliefs around things like Christian fundamentalism or uh, Islamic fundamentalism or any kind of uh, fundamentalism of any sort at all. Uh, things that they believe that uh, are important to their uh, self-belief and the world around them, because that's how humans are. 
and uh, generally speaking, if you're going to change those people who are hardened in their view, they will have to have a mental breakdown in order to be able to change their view. I think as well that a lot of the time they present it as the change is about changing people's minds, but it's not actually like something like abortion has always had popular support in Australia. It has overwhelming support mm, in Australia. It has huge social effects. Well, yes, um, and it's like, you know, during the 70s there was that, you know, it was one of the leading causes of uh, death among women was these backyard abortions. And it was something that, of course, working class people, men and women, both supported because if you had money, you could always get a safe abortion as a woman. But if you didn't, then you were in danger. And it was a whole racket for um, people can read about that huge scandal that the police used to actually make money out of. Um, But a lot of the time, it's not actually about changing people's minds. It's actually about getting the powerful to actually seed something that's in their interest. And I think the way that you do that is by making a strong argument and by being strong and by fighting back. Because I think that actually you see when refugees fight back, when oppressed people fight back, like the reason that people support Aboriginal rights and the numbers that they do in this country is because Aboriginal people were the ones who were fighting back in the 60s and 70s. They were the one who everyone on the left wanted to be like them. And that's when people see to your argument is when you are actually fighting back. So I think that partly, you know, obviously you want to convince uh, people, but a lot of the time it's not words that convince people, it's deeds. (laughs) Which is takes us back to the old Norm Gallagher uh, view that uh, you always win the fight at the gate. <laughs> a weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when 9-11 comes around again, and good to see the US of the UN of the US of the world finally acknowledging that slaughter 43 years ago in Chile, acknowledging its 9-11 conspiracy with mass butcher, General Pinch of Shit, And a week also when the Socialist Party copped it in the neck over a matter of great ideological and political import. A right-wing numbers games player, Senator Sam Bastardry, taking expenses from a Chinese company, an evil Chinese company, apparently because the poor, caring business class party was in a state of threatened hysteria, especially that delightful, carefree, live and let live, despite living in constant fear of bestiality, Corey St. Bernardi, hence his name, and the leader of the House, Christopher Payne, in there, taking a break from celebrating his stellar success at losing three votes in a row in the House he leads. Well, not so much taking a break as shocked into a state of red-faced apoplexy, a mobile heart attack at the thought that someone could so cavort with the enemy by accepting, indeed requesting, a handout which as an aside, indicates just how poorly paid our politicians are that poor bastardry was forced to ask this Chinese company to come to the rescue. Expressed by Big Supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull when handed his Big Supremo salary. Uh, Thank you for the expenses, the uh, petty cash, but uh, when do I get my salary? Anyway, let's clarify this other business. So, Corey Christopher, China is the enemy. No, China is a close friend, Christopher spoke for them, with whom we have an excellent economic relationship 
And yes, China is the enemy, as per our instructions, from our very, very, very close friend, our very special friend, the US of the UN, of the US of the world. China, our friend when it comes to profit. China, our enemy when it comes to the interests of the merchants of death. And there is a big difference between Chinese companies donating to the caring business class or to the Socialist Party, for that matter, although I've no idea why it would, and giving money to Senator Bastardry. In the latter, it is clearly acting as the enemy threatening national security, and in the former, it is clearly acting as a friend anxious to ensure the continued responsible government provided by the caring business class party. In making donations, overseas corporations and donors donate to the political party of their choice. Uh, but they give to you and they give to the socialists. Sometimes it's hard to choose. Do you agree with uh, Christopher Corey? Uh, I think so, uh, uh, whatever he said. So that's clarified that. Economic guru and former minister for concentration camps raise a wire and sink the boat, scuttled them more or less, son, through his considerable intellect into the controversy by asking, who would have thought Sam Bastardry had higher standards than Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo little Billy Shorten ambition? And I thought, he's right, yeah, who would have thought? But we don't have to think in betting terms it's even money and using the same analogy if we threw scuttle them himself into the higher lower standard stakes it'd be a triple dead heat toss in corey and christopher and what a race after refusing to explain why he'd asked the chinese enemy stroke close friend company to pay his expense bill sam finally came clean late thursday I asked them to pay the bill, he clarified the mystery, because I didn't want to pay it. <laughs> That's what he said. Satire bleed. We can't compete. After it was revealed Chinese interests owned 0.4% of true blue agricultural land, Corey and the gang called for a ban on foreign ownership of our farms. Uh, so given Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country lot own 7.2% and the US of 2%, you'll be wanting to get rid of them, get them out. Where did that come from? I said foreign investment. Corey also fired a brilliant retort after former train killer... Uh, Jackie Lumpen, or sorry, um, military copper, Jack, uh, Jackie Lumpen, described him as an angry prostitute, then quite properly apologised to prostitutes. She's too thick to pay attention to. Corey demolished that argument. It's like an episode of Dumb and Dumber. Perhaps we should remind Corey that if, in his opinion, Lumpen is the dumb bit, Who's the dumber bit? Obviously no segue here, but bit of a commotion in that appalling Hoonsun's office the other morning when an assistant clearly said the wrong thing. Hello, he burst in to start the day's work. No hello, that appalling screeched. No hello, ban Islam. I just said hello, not halal. It sounds the same. It gave me such a shock. I thought, oh no, a terrorist. Hello, is it Islamic plot to seduce good true blue Aussies? Thus, that appalling officers began a campaign to ban hello, a private member's ban hello bill, as they continue to save white true blue Aussie from itself. Haven't we got to be careful, vigilant against racist threats to our language? Thank you, that appalling. 
And staying on great minds, but moving on to the current Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, given this has been Child Protection Week, we thought we'd get an endorsement from those who cherish dear little children created in the image of the dear baby Jesus and both respect and defend the rights of all children. It is imperative that we do nothing to abuse the rights of dear little children, Peter expressed true humanity. As the dear baby Jesus himself said, do unto others as you would do unto me. And don't forget, they strung him up, whereas we don't go that far. We accommodate dear little children on idyllic Pacific islands. Away from all this excitement back here, the world's biggest economies got together in China to make the world a better place for all of us, and big supremo Malcolm began by lecturing the world, warning the world about slow economic growth and the dangers of protectionism. And we can but imagine how those representing the world, self-important politicians and the altruistic world corporate leaders they serve, hung on his every word. In fact, US of corporate leader Chuck Bloated IV spoke for all of them, expressing his appreciation of Malcolm's advice. Who's that smart-ass guy? He poured another scotch. How'd he get in? At the end of it all, after these Mensa minds devoted themselves to lifting the world's poor out of poverty, the practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all and their parliamentary servants leapt on the obvious solution. Trade! they concluded. Trade with each other will save the poor. What devotion, although let's hope there's some final communique or other which provides just a, a touch more detail in the how department. Let's hope and let's assume that trade involves lots of good, clean, lifting the poor out of poverty coal, which our very own Minister for Fossils, Josh Friedem Icebergs, knows will solve world poverty. Presumably because there'll be no poor or filthy rich on a dead planet. On that, despite Lord Rupert's conviction, not the criminal sort, but the other sort, that, the, that here in Victoria, the pejorative Dan is a rabid socialist, it's a bit questionable because after Dan banned the onomatopoeic fracking, he was attacked by one of this country's great socialists who spent years serving the underprivileged and now serves the underprivileged, under-attack, great resource industry. Yes, that working-class hero, Martin Cliché. At the end of the day, when the sun sets, after dinner and after supper, looking at the bottom line through the window of opportunity... And here's where Martin's rabbit socialism runs riot. This will inflict real economic harm for no environmental gain. And he iterated the industry's guarantees that getting fracked is as safe as an Italian earthquake zone. Poor Martin and the industry know the ban emanates from lies, misinformation spread by all these long-haired commie farmers across the state, backed up by scruffy environmentalists. There's another pejorative... But the bloody activists, as they're called, another pejorative, have forced the Spanish contractor who inherited the Manus Island and Nauru torture contracts from Broad Spectrum, from Broad Spectrum which used to be transfilled the refugees but changed its name thinking people wouldn't notice, and their hired torturers worse than security, which has said it too won't renew the contract. Apparently, because all those bloody long-haired activists had brought it to its senses and worsened security realised torture wasn't so good. 
it could torture our bottom line, it cried. An ex-Big Supremo, the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in the last dark ages, warned against putting, putting the uh, question of a treaty with the Terranullius people to the people. It would be really divisive. It would divide the true Blue Aussie community. It, it really would. And shows these blacks don't know their place. It, it really does. We mentioned last week U.S. of would-be big supremo Donald Trample the Poor heading to Mexico to build bridges over building fences, how building a fence would be a joint venture. We'll build it and you'll pay for it. Well, Donald returned home to announce the Mexican big supremo had agreed to pay for it and the Mexican big uh, big supremo then said there was no way Mexico would pay for it, proving Donald's point that you just can't trust these Mexicans. Finally, we, we might complain about obscene salaries for those who understand the greatest little economic order of them all, but the big supremo of developer Stockland for Profit, who's also head of the Property Profits Council of True Blue Aussie, earned every cent of his obscene salary with his insight into why so many people can't get into the housing market. Affordability is the defining issue, he informed us. <laughs> who would have thought... Good morning. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Oh 
a great piece of music. That's uh, from Ain't It Strained Radio Ethiopia and uh, reminiscent, I'd have to say, of uh, Ruby Hunter. That's her sort of sound. On the phone we've got at the moment is uh, Noah, Noah Brazil. Good morning, Noah. Is that Kim as well, is it? Yes. Good morning, Kim. Nice to speak to you both. Yes, great. It's great to hear you. I was a bit worried, but... uh, Technology uh, saved us and you're there. It's great to hear your voice. Thank you. Yeah, well, there's lots of different things to talk to you about today. I thought we'd first go over to Sudan because actually uh, things are hotting up there again, aren't they? Oh, they've been hot there for some time and uh, I think this is just a continuation of an ongoing um, just uh, a deep malaise in this new country. Yeah, it's dreadful, isn't it? Um, but also power brokers, the dreadful power brokers who don't seem to be able to. Is it the resources that are causing this trouble? Uh, look, I think the resources are playing a part and certainly the South Sudan, the impetus for much of the international community support for the formation of, the, of South Sudan came from a, um, a sort of a, a competition for resources. Um, it's a rich hugely rich um, um, area that had been under, um, under, I would say, exploited um, because of the ongoing uh, crisis between the North and South um, and also because of the, um, I would say, the uh, cartoon government's uh, tendency to, um, um, t- towards... Um, China in particular, and um, I think the US and many of its allies were very keen to separate the North and South so they would have more um, capacity uh, to influence the new government in the South. So that plays one part. It's a hugely, I mean, it's hugely rich and at the same time extremely poor. I know. Um, um, At one point, uh, there's a, a scholar who's done a lot of work on the South Sudan. Um, and he made the point that uh, there is less than 100 kilometres of road in that entire region of paved road. Um, so I think that's one part of it. The other part of it is that the struggle and the uh, the, the war that had uh, engulfed the South Sudan more or less from 1956 right through to uh, mid to the early 2000s between the north and the south had created certain um, sort of certain groups in the south that held on to territory and um, competed with each other and also with the government in, in North Sudan. And then once South Sudan became an independent country, those groups wanted were vying for power within this new entity. Um, so now one of the great comments I came across just after the South Sudan was formed and which I used in some of my work was um, from Alex Deval, who's an incredibly well-known scholar of East Africa, who said that the creation of South Sudan has, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, um, has uh, created two failed states instead of one. Mm. Um, and in, uh, And as we look back six years on, um, his analysis, I think, is is uh, fairly accurate. The contradictions that were existent in the South Sudan at the time of in de- its independence um, were probably... Uh, have have con- have led to this um, um, ongoing problem. 
So when you when you say that uh, the basically the reverberation of Chinese power and money across the world is actually f- uh, feeling uh, is felt in Sudan, we're also feeling it here, aren't we? Uh, this power struggle that seems to be be developing between two imperial forces. Indeed, um, they're, yes, they're two imperial forces, but they're forces within the same global. Um, uh, system. That is, the Chinese are doing exactly what the um, US, the British, the French, the Germans, the, the, um, a whole range of other countries who have long exploited uh, um, poorer countries have done. I mean, you know, this idea that China is somehow a, um, a sort of a, 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 a unique um, Actor is really just, uh, in many ways, uh, mis- misinforming people. Chinese companies and the Chinese government are doing more or less uh, exactly what um, other major powers have done in poor countries for, for, I would say, centuries. I think this is quite interesting because I know that they're going on a lot about the stuff about China um, and the decision, you know, in the South China Sea and how this is in contravention of the law of the sea and as if this is some huge scandal, and it might be, but actually Australia convenes that law all the time in East Timor and this is something that they seem to completely ignore. Indeed. I mean, most, uh, you know, great powers uh, or stronger countries uh, have for a long time um, used that that strength to deny other other country and people their rights and i mean china is doing and this is the thing china has adapted to the global system very well since uh the 1970s um and in many ways is has has uh um, uh, you know it's not a departure they're not doing anything differently to what other other parts of the world do i mean the u.s uh uses its um its huge military and naval power to control different parts of the world. I mean, they have 800 bases around the world. Um, you know, they, they, the Chinese are um, flexing their muscles in their region just as other powers do um, um, in similar ways. So it's a system that is, in my view, it's a system that produces this behaviour. Do, do you think uh, that... Do you think that um the fact that uh, there's this amplification going on around fear of China when actually, even though China is a big player, it's not anywhere really as big as, say, Europe or America. That's true, isn't it, economically? Um, yeah, that is true, um, except I would say that, I mean, we're... Well, part of my problem with the way that this is all presented is somehow we focus on uh, countries and um, rather than capitalism. Yeah. I mean, you know, many of the Chinese companies are now um, embedded in the in the global economy and they act as capitalist um, um, entities. So, you know, when we talk about Chinese companies, yes, largely they're made up of Chinese capital. Uh, but they're also operating within a global system where you know that they um, uh, they uh, uh, that they are engaged or um, uh, participating um, as capitalist entities 
in competition with others. And sometimes it's not clear when which companies are Chinese or American or British. And you know, the really good example is BHP, which you know is an Australian company for a long time, has been bought out by a South African company. But there's a lot of British and American um, Japanese capital that uh, is invested in BHP. So is it really a South African or Australian company or is it a company that, you know, that, that has, uh, that, is, that is a global capitalist so, company? So, right? Noah, are you actually saying that capital doesn't have a nationality? I don't think it... I mean, Marx made this point to, uh, 150 years ago. Uh, Lenin made it when he wrote about imperialism. Yes, there is, there is a... In, in, in a lot of cases, there is a dominant uh, national capital Often, you know, that, that capital, op, it's, there are many companies work against their own nation's interests. We've seen that with major companies like Google and Amazon who offshore their pro- profits. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, Google uh, was it... They're like, a law unto themselves week? almost, you'd say. Well, I mean, the purpose of capital is to reproduce itself. Yeah, like um, a cancer. Well, uh, yeah. But, uh, and the, if that means that it does so... Um, you know, by offshoring its profits or by... I mean, you know, how many American companies offshored in the, or Australian companies offshored in the 80s and 90s and threw many of their own co-nationals out of work? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a fascinating. Yeah. Um, there's a great film, uh, I, I can't even remember, uh, Merchants of... Merchants of... Miseries? Misery, mm-hmm. yeah. And Misery, there's a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's this great... Um, uh, sequence in it where the English uh, th- there's a English government committee uh, qu- querying uh, people from Google and from Apple some young men you know in their early 30s yeah. you know spry looking young fellows and uh, this uh, middle aged woman uh, slightly elderly and uh, the her cohort she's saying to them uh, yes, uh, so uh, actually you're acting in a completely disloyal manner, aren't you, when you don't pay your tax? And the man looks at her completely bemused. We're just being good business people, he's, you know, he's saying. He can't understand yeah. what yeah. her question is. Indeed. I mean, you know, uh, I think we focus too much on, you know, China or the US. Um, and certainly they are involved in this process and Chinese leaders often go overseas and um, and um, arrange or sign uh, bilateral treaties with other countries so that their companies can go in and but you know then you know the, the second or third stage of that company's profits might not actually have anything to do with China yes um, that's right and yeah. also there's also a, um, a shadow economy running in China which could actually catch up on its main economy and, uh, like a vampire, suck all its blood out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, Noam Chomsky makes the point that big companies, um, companies, are totalitarian uh, entities. Yeah, that's exactly Um, right. You know, they're not democratic. I mean, they may have shareholders who can vote, but generally speaking, they operate within their own, uh, you know, as entities within with their own um, logic and their own rationale and their own aims and purposes. And sometimes those aims and purposes... um, conflict with those of the, of the country from which they, they originate from. Uh, we've seen many countries, uh, you know, I, I was listening to a terrible story about uh, asbestos uh, mm. um, um, in a, a far western New South Wales town, Aboriginal, largely Aboriginal community, um, and, you know, how James Hardy used, um, used uh, asbestos almost as a way of... Uh, 
uh, sort of paying off locals. Um, oh. You know, the fillings were used to, for sand pits and for a whole range of things around this town. And, you know, 30 or 40 years on, uh, there's a huge increase in the um, in the fatalities around uh, around asbestos as a result. But James Hardy's not in Australia anymore. It's offshore because... Uh, yeah, it's in Holland. Yeah. It's Holland, uh, you know. So you know, James Hardy was for a long time an Australian company. It, it sponsored Australian football teams. It did a whole range of things. But you know, at the moment that its interests were no were compromised by being in Australia, it just packed up and left. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's no, there's no loyalty in a large company. In fact, it's interesting because the argument that uh, that used to be had, which was that sponsorship. Uh, you had to be careful who your sponsors were. People then went on to say that, uh, oh, you know, money doesn't have any, any. Uh, well, it's like you say, money's got no nationality, so it doesn't matter. We can take their bad money for, to create good. But actually, the arguments are all still the same, aren't they? If you're well, beholden. Are, I mean, well, the, the world, the, the current setup or structure of the system is that capital and goods can move freely and the only, and, and a certain proportion of the world's population, you know, the one, three, five, ten percent that are um, uh, the, that have benefited from this, this system uh, move freely, but the rest of the world are bound by uh, very rigid um, um, migration laws. Uh, first time in history, really, that people have been prevented from moving freely. Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah, and this, this, you know, this is one of the tensions in the current system at the moment because capital and goods are moving, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in, in ways that are impoverishing um, societies, but those people who are being impoverished can't move uh, to follow the goods and the capital, the employment, the opportunities, and everything goes with that. Um, with, with sort of trajectories, so you know, this is, when we talk about refugees and you know asylum seekers and migrants, and people talk about economic migrants. Well, there's a reason why we have economic migrants, and that is because uh, uh, resources, goods, opportunities are uh, shifting from one part of the world to the other, and they're leaving people uh, where, where places like the South Sudan without opportunities to better their lives. So I think what. what Sorry, Sorry, I just related to what you were saying. I suppose the place where a lot of these refugees are coming from, Syria, it reminds me of what you were saying about how important it is to think about this as a world system rather than thinking about it as the US or China. Because I think yeah. that, and a, a lot of people on the left would disagree with, with me, but looking at the situation in Syria, you really have to look at the imperial interests, not just of the US um, but also of Russia and all those different countries mm -hmm. and how it's become this... Even Turkey. Yeah, how it's become this, yeah. I suppose, microcosm for this global imperialist rivalry. Indeed, and the seeds of the problem are based on that imperial system. I mean, Syria was a country that was formed artificially by colonialism at the end of World War I. Um, it, its leadership uh, have largely been either uh, overthrown or... Um, installed and supported uh, as a response to or in favour of the imperial system right through this modern history. Um, you know, Assad, uh, Hafiz al-Assad in 1991 supported the, the US, so the, the UN invasion um, of Iraq or the liberation of Kuwait. Uh, as a result, he received a great deal of international support, especially from the US. Um, you know, when his son came to power, 
he started to reform the system so that it could open up to the global economy. This created winners and losers. You know, these, you know, right through Syria's history, it's been, it's, um, its fortunes have been shaped by the system that it's in. Um, the war is not just a result of uh, a pro-democracy movement um, trying to overthrow an authoritarian leader. That's certainly one part of it, but out of the context of this longer history, that makes no sense. Yeah, you know, yeah. in fact, it's, it's, it's becoming... It, that's, that narrative is uh, wearing a bit thin, really, considering what's happening. Yeah. I'll tell you so, uh, something else I wanted to bring up, which is, you know, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific mm-hmm. Partnership, which appears to be uh, dying a slow and gasping death because not many yes. countries are actually taking it on board. But it's been pointed out by George Mobiot, the uh, journalist, that uh, they're now moving on. The neoliberals never forget, or the corporates never Never forget, they may not win this battle, but they're now moving on to wanting to create a a, 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 a treaty, an economic treaty between Europe and Canada. And as he was pointing out in his article, that um, nobody, you know, people might see this as being uh, inoffensive, but in actual fact, all they're doing is trying to create the uh, precedent for whatever these uh, outrageous levels of uh, power that they want over nation states. Indeed, uh, and uh, you know the TPP. I mean, one of the really interesting, uh, one of the interesting, I think, uh, um, uh, phenomena that's occurring now is that we're seeing a backlash against this. We've seen it in the UK with the vote against, uh, well, the vote for exit from the EU. We've seen it with the rise of Trump. We've seen it here with the rise of Hanson and other sort of alternatives to the major parties. There is a sense that the system is not working and people are feeling uh, quite angry at the, uh, the, the the sort of the, the, the sort of what would you call it the the, the greed machine. Yeah, the, the disillusionment around uh, formal politics is, is certainly um, increasing, and there's an increase in nationalism in a sense that um, you know the global system uh, doesn't offer. Hasn't hasn't lived up to what it what it was promised after the end of the Cold War. Um, now I think elites have uh, you know elites are always conscious of this and they want to maintain the system and to maintain it they need to find alternatives to more, to the blunt force that they've used over the last twenty years. Uh, as the the sort of uh, compelling nature of the globalisation discourse is now waning, they're looking for other ways to buttress the system through. You know, nationalism. I mean, Trump is not going to reform the system in the interests of uh, the people who have been marginalised by globalisation. Um, you know, neither will Boris Johnson and um, and, and his type um, in the UK following Brexit. Um, so, yeah, there now what we might see over the next few years is this toing and froing around, you know, uh, around the. Uh, ways that the global system is represented and the alternatives that are offered. But in essence, I think we won't see a departure from neoliberalism. What we'll see is different forms of representing it. And um, that, that I think... Yeah, my, my own view is that that's what's happening with the shift from the TPP to these other, um, to these other forms of uh, international trade arrangements. And we'll see that in tax debates and we'll see it in welfare debates and we'll see it in a whole, a whole range of other areas where the old 
old, the current or the the um, the existing um, arguments for why we should open up to the global economy or for why we should reduce government spending or for why we should you know do whatever will shift a little bit to take into account the increasing animosity towards that system. It's interesting. It's like they don't really have the carte blanche to do a kind of Margaret Thatcher, you know, where there's no such thing as society and really have yeah. the authority. I think that neoliberal, neoliberalism has really lost it in this kind of last round of austerity and the global financial crisis. They can't Indeed. use that kind of brand anymore as obviously. Um, and I think you see that it's kind of always been the case in Australia, but maybe because the Labor Party brought in neoliberalism sort of through the back door and with a lot of social arguments, they never won that argument yep. in Australia, which is why I think the last budget ended up sort of stalling. Yeah, I agree. I think also Australia has a stronger sense of it. I mean, in some ways, uh, we're more similar social welfare state. Sorry, we're more similar to the social welfare states of Northern Europe than we are of the US and um, the sort of individualism of the UK. You know, Australia has this long, well, white Australia has this long uh, notion of egalitarianism and uh, fair go, and those things are embedded in our culture. So to undo them, you actually have to work with those discourses or you have to find ways of um, of changing them dramatically. And that's what Howard tried to do. I mean, he came to power and he said, you, have to, you know, his, his aim was to change the way that Australia thinks about itself. Um but he failed he, well, firstly, with the MUA dispute, I think. He did, he did. But he also, he did shift us somewhat. Yeah, he did. Um, he did, and, you know, those years. But also, to, you know, what I think what we're seeing also is as that project is failing, that, um, you know, uh, uh, we're seeing it here in Australia, we've certainly seen it in, uh, the, we're seeing it currently in the US and definitely saw it in Brexit, is that the focus hasn't been... It's been shifted from the failure of the system to uh, to focus in, instead on people who are supposedly responsible uh, for the yes. failure of the system, and that's... Mm. Well migrants. pointed. Yeah, uh, migrants in the US, it's... Uh, um, uh, you know, Trump has focused on Mexicans in particular, uh, or yeah. Hispanics, but also... You know, there's this uh, there's this uh, ongoing discourse around um, on the elites as well. So it's, it's really interesting that you know the one they've bought into, or they've I think they've appropriated, especially in the US and the UK, the notion that the one percent uh, responsible. Yeah, right. That's right. Because everything's been done through pub, uh, promotional activity. So it, yeah, they will. They would have sat in a, a think tank thinking about how they could turn this around. There was that one billionaire or whatever who was going on about, you know, we really have to do something about inequality because, you know, all the yeah. 99% yeah. are sharpening their pitchforks. Yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing is that these people are from the 1%. That's exactly right. You know, Trump is from the 1%. That's know, right. The, what a joke. The, I mean, know. it's outrageous, isn't yeah. it? Oh, well yeah, pointed, Noah. Yeah, but uh, I, I, that, that in a strange way is where his legitimacy comes from. He yeah. says over and over again, yeah, that's right. you know, I, I'm from the system, I'm from the 1%, and so you can trust that I know how it works. I anyway, suppose the problem is a lack of organised left wing politics, to stop. really. We have yeah, to stop, yeah. we have to stop, because it's, we've only oh, got no. three minutes to go, I know. We're just okay. about to solve everything. I know we are. We will <laughs> next time, I'm sure. So. <laughs> Thanks, Noah. Thanks, Noah. It's been great to talk to you both. See you later. See Bye. Ya.
And that was Noah Fasil, and he's right, that was great. Uh, first off on uh, Solidarity Breakfast this morning on 3CR, we spoke to Thomas McLaughlin about the Battle of the uh, Sydney uh, Arts uh, College. Well, very similar College to what of, happened to, at the VCA. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, we then uh, heard from uh, Tynan Brady, who is the Executive Director of Australia's for Equality and was the Political Director of the Irish Marriage Equality Equality Yes Vote campaign. And uh, we've just been speaking to Noah Pasil. Coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. And we'll go out with the rest of all the beginning and the rest of Ain't It Strange Radio Ethiopia. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.